Welcome to the Defense End Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody's having a very happy start to Hanukkah. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Despite higher interest rates, unemployment keeps dropping and wages keep rising as Boeing passes on a new aircraft to better compete against Airbus's A320 series. The European jet maker says it's considering developing two new jets to replace the A320 and that while it could pay for both programs, it also could use some government support. This as A320 production is flatlining and Boeing sacks its entire corporate strategy team. A lawsuit between Lockheed Martin and Howmet over titanium pricing goes public and could further delay the F-35 program. And the V-22 fleet is grounded for the second time in 2023 that could have implications for the U.S. Army's future long-range assault aircraft competition. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back. Wouldn't be Sunday uh, without having the whole team together. Ron, start us off. Uh, give us your quick take on markets. And Sash, want to get your sense from a European perspective on broad do- uh, drivers before we dive into the specifics. Ron, go ahead. It would seem like Santa's riding in this year on a commercial jet. Um, if you look at the commercial names and compare them to the defense names, um, our our commercial names did much better. So if you look at the S and P on the week, it was roughly flat. You know, it was up you know twenty basis points. Ten um, year yield four point two. That's where it was last week. Oil prices are roughly the same. The VIX, you know, the measurement of, of like fear and loathing in the market it was at twelve. That's where it was last week. So you know, it's, everything's pretty copacetic in the market. Um, like you mentioned, the economic numbers I think were well received. Um, but broadly, Boeing was up almost 5% this week. You know, Spirit's been following it up right on its tail. Uh, and then across the defense stocks, uh, just sort of mixed stuff. You know, General Dynamics was up a percent, Northrop was down a percent, Lockheed was roughly flat. Uh, so the real winner lately has been been commercial aerospace. And in fact, some of the incoming we've heard from our clients is, why is commercial aerospace doing so well? Um, so um, I think the best answer on that is uh, Santa's not riding reindeers this year. He's riding 737s and A320s. <laughs> That's uh, that's great. Now we're going to get uh, get to whether or not they can hit that uh, very ambitious 720 plane uh, target. Great, uh, great note, Sash. Um, walk us through sort of general European market performance and and sentiment here as we as we wrap up the week and all eyes are on whether or not uh, the two big commercial airplane makers are going to be able to deliver. And then, right, I mean, a whole subtext of defense stories as well, given that this has been a very strong defense growth year for a lot of folks. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, I mean, again, very similar pattern to um, what Ron said about the street. Europe, um, you know, European A&D stocks overall up a touch through, you know, 0.3% there. Um, but within that, the civil stocks are up over 2% and the defence stocks were down uh, about 0.6%. Um, what were the standouts in civil? The standout was Rolls-Royce. Now, Rolls-Royce, the week before last, had a capital markets day. Um, they... Uh, it finally started talking about medium-term uh, targets to get their margins towards the levels of uh, General Electric, Safran, who are the leaders, uh, their cash flows towards um, similar levels to their peers. That was taken very well. And actually, you know, the other thing, which we've got a lot of client incoming about um, this week, has been Rolls-Royce also saying, you know, um, almost in passing, oh, by the way, we're, we're exiting from uh, electric motors and uh, urban air mobility because we don't think we're going to make any money. And having Rolls-Royce exit a market because they just can't see the business case, that's not something management used to do. 
Um, management, you know, really couldn't see anything flying that they didn't want to power. Uh, but the new chief executive, Tufan Egan Bilic, is being absolutely ruthless in terms of, uh, you know, really formulating a strategy and, and, and sticking to it. And investors like that. So rolls up 6%. That was the standout. Otherwise, you know, um, Kongsberg off almost the same. But Kongsberg's a smaller liquid stock in a, you know, even in the Norwegian con context. But it just gives you an idea. The market was the market was buying civil um, and uh, everything else just drifted. It, it's interesting to watch these year end trends and trying to make uh, sense of them since some people are already mentally checking out, even though it's, it's a tough time of the year to make sure your sheets look good. Um, Richard, start us off. Uh, Boeing, uh, excuse me, Airbus has a very ambitious 720 plane target. It wants to hit Sash again, as I said, terrific note, 97 uh, deliveries um, in December is what the company is looking toward. Uh, Boeing, uh, Ron, a uh, great note on Boeing that they're just not getting past the 36 airplane uh, mark for the 737, right? So their delivery numbers are going to be a little bit lower. Where are both of these companies going to fall? And what do you see in the numbers at the end of the day, right? I mean, the, the app bulkhead issue has still become, you know, uh, from Spirit Aero Systems, that's still a challenge for Boeing. What, what do these numbers tell you writ large? Well, you know, 97 is doable. Historically, they push an awful lot of metal out of the door uh, that last month, despite what you'd think about holidays and such. Um, but, you know, not without risks. I mean, 97 is a really big number for Airbus. But, you know, and of course, you had 64 in November, uh, which is, <laughs> that means you got a 50% leap the last month. So I, I tend to be a little bit, um, you know, slightly skeptical, but at least they'll break 700. That's almost certain. You know, also compare. Uh, last year, this time was when they came up with their shock car announcement that they were about 100 planes light relative to expectations. So this year beats that state of affairs that we saw 12 months ago. Um, you know, as for as for Boeing, you know, that's a very respectable number doing, I believe, uh, 59, you know, including, I believe, uh, 48 um, 737s. The delay February 24 of the ramp up to 42 per month on the maxes, I think was eh, pretty much already digested. But, uh, you know, as Ron says, it shows the risks associated with the, uh, the you know, the various bottlenecks in the supply chain, particularly spirit. Um, you know, obviously, whatever change Pat Shanahan brings to spirit, it's going to take another few months to, to bear fruit um, and not without risk, but, uh, you know, certainly promising. Um, you know, in general, I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll I'll go along with with Ron and uh, come up with that Santa riding jetliners metaphor. <laughs> uh, a quick word from our sponsors: Bell sponsors their daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Um, Ron and uh, Sash, any commentary on those delivery figures and, and what they broadly tell us? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I would say this on, on Boeing, the quote unquote news that broke, you know, that the, the 38 got shifted by by two months or whatever. Boeing never really came out, at least to the financial world, and said that they were ever going to get to the to the 42 you know, that shifted. Um, so, I mean, if they actually do 42 in the first half of next year, let alone the second half of next year, I think that'll be really well received. And that's, and, and there's always a lot of confusion around deliveries versus what comes off their line, right? You still got to remember, you know, Boeing has a lot of 737s in inventory that are, you know, kind of going through the shadow process of getting delivered. And then they're fabricating things. And that, I believe that news article was focusing on um, stuff coming off the line. So if they were actually getting 42 737s off the line, plus what's coming out of inventory, 
that's actually pretty good. And if it were to happen two months late, four months late, I don't think anybody would really care. Sash? Yeah, um, I'm going to disagree with Richard slightly. I think that um, Airbus's December target is really very low. Uh, I think I'd be very surprised if they don't get to 720. Um, yeah, 97 aircraft, That you know, yes, that's a big increase on uh, what they did in November. But Airbus always has a, a, a big December. But put it in perspective, 97 aircraft gets them to 720. The average for all of the Decembers since 2016 has been 112 aircraft. Um, so they've only got to deliver 13% of their full year target in December compared to an average of 16% um, since 2016. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to me to be much of a stretch compared to previous years. Uh, I think they've actually done a really good job of de-risking um, this year's deliveries. But, and this is the rub, uh, the real story is, in our view, that when you look at the, the moving average number of deliveries each month, which you know, takes out uh, some of that quarterly and monthly um, uh, fluctuations. It seems to us that the A320 lines, and remember, they've got lines now in four countries. The A320 lines are flatlining at the moment. Um, they've stalled at about 47 aircraft a month. Um, they actually came down in the last two months compared to uh, uh, September. And even if they do 97 aircraft uh, in, in December, we're still going to be at about 40, you know, a rate of 47. And it why is that? Well, part of it just might be production drag that um, uh, they've been re uh, con or they've been converting the A320 lines to make them A321 uh, capable. And wouldn't you? Because after all, you know, nearly two thirds of your output is now A321s. But part of it, I think, I think we're seeing the engine uh, makers um, starting to uh, you know put the brakes on again. It's just quite hard to believe that Airbus is getting enough engines from either GE or CFMI rather. Uh, or Pratt & Whitney to push out all of the aircraft uh, that, that, that they would like to in as timely a way as we'd like to. So I think, you know, when we've looked at it, we think that the big risk actually isn't now this year. The big risk is next year, that Airbus comes up with some pretty low guidance for next year, 750, 760 aircraft, um, which, will, which is nowhere near their production rate targets of getting to 75 in uh, 25, 26, 20, uh, 75A320s a month. But just the, you know, the supply chain, the engine chain cannot get them any higher uh, any sooner. And, and you know, if that's the case, then they're going to have to make Herculean efforts in 2025 <clears throat> to get the rate up. Now, you know, that's that's some time away. But it does worry me that, you know, the A320 lines are flatlining. Um, and I, I want to get uh, that's a great segue to Gam uh, for you. But just very quickly to Richard, do you, the Chinese economy continues to lurch from sort of one crisis to another? Are these numbers as solid as everybody believes them to be, especially from an Airbus standpoint, considering that Airbus uh, is actually shipping airplanes to the Chinese and has a facility there? I just don't think China is a material part of demand right now. Um, okay. And, and you know, I mean, the number one astonishing, completely shock horror condition of the jetliner market right now, and indeed many other parts of the industry, is that we don't care about demand very much. It's all about supply. Um, now, in a couple of years, I may be chewing bitterly on these words. You know, it's like because eventually markets will rear their ugly heads again, and right. you know, demand will be inadequate relative to the supply we've ramped up for. It will take most of the decade to get there. In some markets, maybe in jetliners, I don't know. Um, but you know, right now, 
we're looking at 5% growth from GDP of GDP in China. Historically, it used to be a 2x multiplier for air travel demand. It no longer is. Before the pandemic, it came down to a 1x multiplier, which means it's quite likely that our PK growth might just be, you know, 5 6%, something like that, assuming they're telling the truth about their GDP growth numbers, in which case they just don't need that many jets. You know, they've been taking about half their peak right. at about, you know, about 170, 180. They'll probably continue to do so in that, you know, rough 200 range. Um that doesn't appear to be a risk moving forward for at least the next three or four years. Sash, terrific story by Sylvia Pfeiffer of the Financial uh, Times, uh, and wanted to get your take uh, on the story. Guillaume Fauré uh, saying that he wants to develop uh, not just one, but maybe two replacements for the A320 uh, family. It's interesting that Boeing is passing, um, whereas Airbus is, has got that successful line and is already looking to a next generation uh, aircraft. They want it around 2035, 2040. One, about a 150, 180-seat jetliner. The other one, perhaps a hybrid uh, turboprop. He says he can afford it, but he could use some launch aid, which then becomes an interesting discussion uh, in and of itself. Talk to us about the message. Is he on the right track? And then want to get everybody's sense, are these the two right airplanes they should be developing? And what does that mean for Boeing, ultimately, <laughs> at a time when it doesn't have a corporate strategy function? Anyway, you know, we'll, we'll get to that, too. Go ahead. Start us off, Sash. One, is he right to be, to be thinking about developing new airplanes? You bet, because the civil aerospace industry is just going to get nowhere near decarbonization, producing 737 Maxes and A320 Neos. doesn't matter what you do to them, they produce or they generate uh, far too much in the way of, of greenhouse gases, and that is becomes politically and societally unacceptable, um, certainly on a 10-year view, if not a five-year view. So, so um, production as, as usual although it is very, very appealing to the OEMs because they make a ton of money out of nice material programs, or they should do, um, production as, as normal is, is simply not going to wash it. And that's why Airbus has, has long had a target of roughly mid-30s introduction in service of uh, new um, aircraft. I actually think that Gianfori is, is alluding to two quite separate things. A hydrogen power, I mean, they, they've talked about a hydrogen powered aircraft by the mid-30s. But when you look at the artist's impressions, it looks to me to be a, a large-ish turboprop. So something that ultimately supplants, replaces uh, ATR. Um, it's not necessarily obvious what the the more conventional, although still pretty unconventional, narrow-body uh, airliner will be. But it's it does seem to me that whatever it is, the gauge is going to be significantly bigger than the A320. The A320 started at 150 seats, went down to near, uh, sorry, 150 seats, went down to uh, about 110 with the A318. That one didn't end well. And then went up to, you know, 180, 200 plus plus with the A321. Any new short haul airliner, shortish haul airliner is going to be much more like an A321. And Airbus can probably fill in the 150 seat segment with the A220. But the story actually that the FT broke, and I don't, you know, they 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 realised it, but um, it still took people by surprise. Was Airbus talking about coming back for refundable launch aid um, or ref refundable launch investment? Now, we were talking about this before the recording. We all thought that the whole issue of launch aid was buried deep, silver stakes in the heart, lots of garlic in 2021 after 20 odd years of World Trade Organization. Um, litigation between the US and Europe. So for, for Guillaume Fauré to, to bring this subject out again is remarkable. He knows exactly what he's doing when he uses the letters RLI. It's it's red rag to a, to a bull. Um, 
the paradox, I think, is that he has he is always remembering that part of the uh, the funding issue for Airbus isn't actually funding against the US. It's the competitive funding between the four European Airbus countries, Germany, France, UK, Spain. Um, and they all use launch aid as a means of either keeping work in their countries or getting a bit more. It's a real beg beggar your neighbor um, thing. The, you know, the wonderful thing about Airbus is that no aircraft gets the end of the production line, um, despite all four partners you know, trying to make it fail at some stage, and always has been since Airbus was started. And launch aid is part of that process. Um, right. But I think that this is an incredibly inflammatory issue to be raising at this stage, given the really poor financial state of uh, Boeing. I mean, Boeing can't compete. Um, I would argue Airbus doesn't want Boeing to get state aid because that would level the playing field much more than they want. I think Airbus should just be spending their own cash. But, you know, national interests uh, will probably will out. Richard, your take uh, on uh, sort of the international financing, WTO, free trade elements uh, of this. I mean, obviously, this has been a central squabble uh, transatlantically for a very long time. And as Satch said, we, we thought we'd put it to rest. And then, Ron, in a minute, I'm going to come to you about and, and you, you know, both of you can weigh in on this. Are these the right airplanes they should be developing, right? I mean, we know they should develop an airplane. The key is whether they develop the right airplane. You could develop another A380 or you could uh, develop uh, a 787, right? Which, which one Which one was a, was a, was a better call? R Richard and then uh, Ron. Yeah, the, uh, the second issue first, you know, these may or may not be the right planes. We don't know. It's way too premature to talk about hydrogen, that's for sure. But the point is that they're positioning themselves as a company with a future. Uh, right. Unlike Boeing, which is content to give itself a lobotomy and say, we will be producing 737s until it becomes unfeasible to do so, at which point whoever owns us or parts of us will make a go of it. I mean, it's, you know, a shocking dereliction of leadership and, you know, a, a tragedy for the American industrial base. Whereas Airbus is saying, yeah, we have a future and we're going to be making jets in 30 years. We need to think about that. Good for them. The launch aid. Yeah, that's a bizarre little a bit of nostalgia for your, uh, you know, <laughs> the end of week amusement you know it's just like really you know you've got you're heading towards 70 percent of the market you want government aid to finish the job the optics of that alone are god awful now having said that I, they probably look at it see every green initiative out in the u.s europe and elsewhere funding everything from you know ridiculous ev tolls that actually recarbonize all the way to solar powered elevators whatever else and there's hey hey why can't we get part of that action uh and that that seems a reasonable thing to say again with the god-awful optics of being a majority player heading towards a greater majority and expecting government aid to do that so <laughs> you know it's good and bad i suppose ron yeah i mean it, it is hard to say just yet but they are the right aircraft um and then i agree with richard i mean they're thinking about you know what what they would, could do next and um, they've been working on the wing of the future and, and so on and so forth. Um, and like Richard said, um, it's it's a bit early to, to be thinking about hydrogen, but, um, you know, doing a, a larger narrow body, probably doing something at the lower end of the market makes a ton of sense. Um, right. and, if, and if you think about the time frame of it, um, when the, the A320 family first went into the market, you go out to where they're talking about, that's when you'd expect you should probably start replacing the airplane, right? I mean, I mean, ultimately that's that's the, the 737's gone past that, right? I mean, there's the sell-by date and kind of gone past that. 
um, that would be the sell-by date, I would guess, for you know the the, the A320. Um, but they've got a lot of options. I mean, and then the reality is, at least in the narrow-body market, um, uh, Airbus is sitting in a, a great spot because they can think what they want to do. They can watch what their competitor is going to do. They can watch their competitor being pretty public about not doing a heck of a lot at the moment. Um, and so, you know, they're in a great competitive position. Uh, wide body is a little bit different. I mean, 787 has done quite well, right? So, you know, Boeing in the wide body, wide body market is actually positioned pretty well. Uh, but, in, but in the narrow body market, it's, you know, Airbus is a advantage Airbus. Uh, real quick, Ron, on, you know, they're looking for a wing efficiency of like something like 25 to 30%. Britain is the wing leader uh, in uh, Europe. Can they squeeze out another 25 and 30% of aerodynamic efficiency from these wings without doing something dramatic like, you know, blended wing body or something like that? Um, I, I would say just out of the wing. If you're going to try to get 25, 30% efficiency just out of a wing, that's really, really hard to do. You know, a wing kind of in isolation is is pretty optimized. Um, it right. really depends on, you know, how you're going to put it on the configuration and what you're going to do. So when you look at these these, these concepts, like a, like a truss brace wing, a high wing, a wing with an unducted fan or, or whatever, that's where you got you need all that together. So if you were to tell me, could they build a platform that is 30% more efficient, a combination of a wing, materials, propulsion? Yeah. If you're going to try to get all that out of right. out of the out of the wing, I would say that's probably an impossible putt. Ron, uh, let me get your take on uh, uh, the apparent Boeing decision to get rid of corporate strategy. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Mark Allen, a uh, longtime executive with the company, well, well respected, well liked, uh, was performing the strategy role. Um, he appears uh, to uh, have either resigned or his job was el eliminated. And then I think it was last week that a lot of people who were in that office were also uh, pretty much um, let go. Um, what, what's, what's the rationale? What do we know about this? Because our reading of this, uh, and, and Richard's reading, uh, is, is unfortunately cynical on, on why this is sort of happening. Well, but anyway, I, I, what's, what's your sense? Yeah, I think you have to ask the question and, and, and I'm certain they'll get, you know, questioned on this more going forward. So you, you got rid of a, a central strategy function. Okay. So Presumably, if you pushed it down to the different business units, um, that that might be fine. Um, you can look at a central strategy function and you could critique it either way. Or you could say, hey, you know what? Maybe they didn't do so great because look at where the company is today. And maybe that wasn't their fault, right? I mean, whatever. I mean, there's different ways to look at it. Right. Um, and maybe a business unit knows more about its strategy than some sort of central function, maybe. But but ultimately, and I think this is an important question, you know, what is the strategy about not having a central strategy and having it in, in the business units? That is to say, part of the, the home office job is to deploy just, you know, resources and capital to the business units. So having someone who's, you know, an arm's length or someone's, you know, the royal someone, um, an arm's length removed can have a, maybe a clearer vision on, okay, what what should we be doing as a as a whole? Because anyone in any one of the business units is going to be, of course, fighting for the business unit, right? So, right. Um, it, it, I would imagine it would be really helpful to have an arbiter who's arm distance away, say, hey, okay, you know, business unit A, that's a good idea, but business unit B's idea is better. That's what we should go with. And I, I don't think at least they haven't been clear to the financial community how 
community, how they're going to sort that out. And I think that's really the big question. Uh, and uh, obviously, obviously a critical uh, question, right? I mean, you know, you could hypothetically say that, you know, Mark Allen wasn't good at his job and some of the people who were doing strategy weren't good at their job, but the function itself is something important for what is one of the world's largest companies and America's largest exporter, right? So fundamentally, why wouldn't you want folks uh, to have an oversight function about what uh, each one of their companies are doing at a time when you could argue there was some bad decision-making right across the enterprise uh, that that didn't uh, work well, uh, unfortunately. Um, let me uh, take you uh, real uh, quick before you go, uh, because you wrote a note uh, about this. Uh, there appears uh, the V-22 fleet has been grounded for the second time uh, in uh, this year. Um, terrific airplane, game-changing, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you wrote a note about this because it appears that the crash of the recent, uh, the recent crash of the Air Force MV-22 that was unfortunately, um, you know, the uh, crew members were, were lost in that incident was, appeared to be a material failure, not a pilot uh, error issue. Um, um, obviously, uh, this has an impact on the future long-range assault aircraft, Lara. Bell won that with a V-280, with a, which is a tilt rotor. Army picked it for range and speed. And uh, Bell has designed that in order to be, you know, cheaper to manufacture and much easier uh, to support uh, and to sustain. Obviously, Bell's our sponsor and Bell and Boeing are partnered on V-22. What's your take? We talked a little bit about your thinking about Flora uh, after you got back uh, from your uh, trip. Uh, everybody in the ecosystem, you know, is saying, hey, we're, you know, there's support for the program, you know, pressing ahead trying to make all uh, the, the wickets work on this. But from your standpoint, there also, you know, there, there could be an impact. Walk us through your case. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think you have to look at it, the perspective of what the vehicle does. Um, and it, it's really kind of simple. Um, it it takes off like a helicopter and flies like an airplane. And in you know, the aerodynamic world, that's sort of like the holy grail. That's amazing. The sad reality is, it doesn't make a very good helicopter and it doesn't make a very good airplane, but it can do both. Right. So you have to right. take that on balance and, you know, presumably the, the V280 does it better than the V22 and they've made some improvements to it and, you know, Bravo. Um, and there's a role for that kind of vehicle, but in a broader market where you're going to need aircraft in some cases that are good helicopters. And in some cases that are good airplanes, it can't do everything all the time everywhere right so there has to be some you know if you will kind of like a high low balance and and i would kind of throw out there that that kind of bolsters this case for yeah you probably do want more, more blackhawks or an upgraded blackhawk and then further and this is probably a little bit more controversial point but um you know earlier in my career i did a bunch of work with tilt rotors they're complicated machines it's 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 a it's a more complicated set of flight physics than just a fixed wing airplane or just a helicopter, because it's both. Um, and that that just makes things more complicated. Um, you know, the way they did the architecture on the V280, it's less complicated than the V22, but it's still more complicated than just a helicopter or right. maybe just a turboprop. So that, that, that that's my point, that ultimately, when it's all said and done, it's not hard to imagine a world because of those factors where the Army maybe has a more blended view of you know, how many of these machines that they get that can do this very special and important mission versus when I look at the Blackhawk, it's sort of like a flying F-150. You know, right. you're still going to need a bunch of those. You know what I mean? So that, that's where I'm coming from. 
the um and and right i mean there are cross shafts and you have to move power from one engine to the other so it's a very sophisticated system and honestly you know i mean the um you know i was talking to a marine friend of mine and he said look i mean the accident rate really is not that much different than it is for helicopters right but there is always greater attention on it when it's a v-22 uh, that happens to have an incident because people look at it and they go, well, it's a V-22 and it's had incidents in the, in the, in the past. Whereas, you know, when Blackhawks have an incident, people have a tendency of saying, okay, well, you know, Blackhawk had an accident. There are a lot of Blackhawks flying. There are a lot of V-22s flying too. But what's, uh, what's interesting, actually, we, we, we looked into this and there's different kinds of accidents, right? So there's what you call a class A accident or event, and there's a class B event. Right. Uh, and a class A event is when that results in fatality, you know, disability damage greater than or equal to two and a half million dollars is a very specific thing uh, for that. Um, and, you know, class B events are less serious, you know, partial disability, um, hospitalization and patient care. Um, and the Air Force actually publishes some data on this. So if, if, if you look at um, over the the lifetime of um, uh uh, the the V twenty two and you compare it to the H sixty, um, the rate um, for the H sixty is about three and a three and a third, and for the V twenty two it's about six, and that's per you know per thousand hundred excuse me per hundred thousand flying hours, so it's almost of these class A events it's almost two X versus an H sixty on a V twenty two. So I I don't think it's just a perception. I think there's some some fact there. I think if you look at just pure loss of life, it might be a little bit higher on the H60. Um, but in terms of events where bad things happen, it's actually higher on the V22. Uh, and that would be uh, really interesting also to see like, okay, how are they using the airplane? What are the circumstances in which it's having its accidents, et cetera, et cetera. But and, it's, and, uh, and the thing the thing I would add, and I think this is the part that gets tricky with the vehicle, it has a really nasty wake. Right. I mean, people don't spend their lives thinking about weight physics. You know, I, I did right. for a period of my life. And that just complicates what you can do with the thing. I mean, it's just it's just physics. And I'm not trying to say anything bad about it. I mean, it's a magic machine and it's, it's a really remarkable what they did. So, you know, kudos to the Bell folks. But it is what it is. Right. I mean, it's, right. an, it's a, an aircraft that can take off like a helicopter and fly like an airplane. And there's just trade offs when you do that. Uh, Ron, thanks very much for joining us. We're going to continue uh, press on, but thanks uh, again for joining us and have a great holiday and look forward to having you back on again next week. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Just uh, want to uh, shift gears if anybody wants uh, to talk V-22, but Richard, I suspect you're more interested in talking about Boeing's strategy. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't help but think uh, on some of these, right? I mean, we were at a dinner last week and we were talking about the difference between a ball and something that is ball-ish, or as you joked, ball-adjacent. <laughs> uh, um, and in this case, right, it's either round, you either have strategy or you don't, and it's not round. Anyway, I'm trying to make this uh, analogy for our mutual mutual friend, right? Uh, walk us through how you perceive this. And, um, you know, I think uh, Sash mentioned this as, as well, and, and, and we have. At what point does the U.S. government need to start getting alarmed about this? Uh, given yeah, that I mean, Boeing actually, is one of the nation's most important companies and one of its more, most important defense contractors as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that might be it. I mean, it, it, it the incompetence might be the point. <laughs> In other words, it, the way you would get a company breakup 
past the regulatory obstacles is to, well, <laughs> run the company so poorly that when you did break it up, it became as kind of a relief for regulators that its constituent elements were in other hands. Uh, I think that's a perfectly reasonable scenario here, because how else would you explain how Calhoun, who I think is a smart guy, I'm, I'm sure he is, um, would confuse corporate strategic functions with product development functions at a, at, a, at, a, at a unit level? You know, one, of course, comes up with a product roadmap and the other, as Ron said, allocates resources or arranges M&A or transfers resources between companies, be it personnel or R&D or whatever else, there is absolutely no way to run a company for the long haul by only having individual unit product development teams. That makes no sense. So basically, they're throwing up their hands on defense. And, you know, we'll learn more this year. If they lose NGA, they lose FAXX, don't get a meaningful, you know, part share of either. Uh, or if they do, it's just not that much. Or, and we'll also see about CCA. And if that happens, they're simply going to be this money-losing entity that keeps hemorrhaging cash for years to come, eminently disposable. As for commercial, well, they've made it clear themselves. They're going to be building stuff, not designing and developing stuff, vulnerable to anybody else who does something new, be it Airbus or someone else who decides to enter the business. Uh, so this is a company without a future, by its own admission, it seems. Um, the only way to look at that is to say, okay, we're doing a terrible job. Uh, our objective is to break this thing up. If you stop us, you'll be consigning this company to additional years of bad management. You don't want that. Let us transfer defense to, I don't know, Northrop Grumman, someone like that, and let us transfer to commercials to, I'll make it remain co and float it or whatever else. Um, the, right. There's no other future here that I can see with this strategy or lack, <laughs> deliberate lack thereof. And a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our own uh, JJ uh, Girdler. We're getting into lightning round. Sash, any thoughts on the corporate strategy function and how you perceive this move sitting where you're sitting and having been involved in you know, finance and corporate strategy for 40 years? I, I'm just astonished that a large multi-business, multi-customer, multi-product company doesn't think that it needs to have a central strategy function that can present the chief executive and the board with considered unbiased uh, options and suggestions, recommendations. Um, just a, you know, it, it, it seems to me to be very, very odd indeed. Actually, to go back to Airbus again, what's been fascinating, I mean, Airbus uh, clearly has a central strategy function, but Airbus's chief executive, Guillaume Forey, during the pandemic was effectively running Airbus, the group, so commercial aircraft, defense, space, helicopters, and also he was running directly um, uh, commer the commercial aircraft business. He's now stepping aside from that. He's handing over commercial aircraft to Christian Scherer to go up to being a proper chief executive again and doing the strategy stuff um, because he realizes that you have to be able to look across the whole group. Uh, Airbus has got some strategic problems, uh, particularly with their space activities, but also with their defense activities. And if you are too focused on you know other divisions you miss uh both opportunities and threats weaknesses 
in uh, in in you know the, the businesses that remain. So I think that shows how important central strategy functions really are. You're not going to hear uh, any argument uh, from me on that front. Richard, talk to us a little bit about the Howmet uh, suit and what it means, uh, concerns that it's going to deliver the F-35 program, a lot of charges and countercharges uh, on this. Uh, Lockheed making the case, uh, you know, making a national security case uh, and seeking a restraining order. How Met saying, hey, this is about, you know, money uh, and making more money uh, in, in terms of what's happening. And at the end of the day, there's a very important program that could be impacted, given how important uh, the uh, Hamet uh, obviously and titanium is to all of these programs. What's what's going on and what does it all mean? You know, I think this sort of thing was bound to show up because you've got that tension between suppliers and primes in so many different ways, but the supply chain situation has been particularly vulnerable to issues at the titanium milled product level because so much capacity has been taken offline in the broader world, not just, you know, not military, but commercial um, with the SMPO's exit. Now, um, having said that, this is unusually vitriolic. It, It very seldom shows up in the form of lawsuits and public uh, declarations of acrimony. Um, So it's tough to walk this back, I guess, or tough to see any point of negotiation. Um, And that, of course, raises the question of whether or not there'll be production risks moving forward as a consequence, because titanium, of course, is a a very key part of this. Not that there's no non-key parts, but still, you can see how this would disrupt getting to that goal of 156, which has pretty much never really been achieved. And given the you know transition to uh, block four TR three this year, um, you know they're only going to do you know 97 or something like that. So um, it's it's tough to be optimistic because I don't think that Russian titanium is coming back online anytime soon uh, for a lot of people. And of course, it's going to take a while before. Western producers and allied producers can ramp up sufficient level of milled product and avoid the kind of cost inflation that we're seeing show up here. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, uh, the Paul uh, Sash that's descended on Washington when it comes to the word uh, Ukraine. Uh, there is extremely extreme gloominess about Ukraine's uh, prospects, uh, and now, unfortunately, you know nothing succeeds like succeeding. And nothing uh, fosters greater discontentment than appearing not to succeed. And now there's uh, political infighting that's surfacing in Kiev, uh, which is the worst possible outcome. Is is the mood in Europe as gloomy as it is here about Ukraine and its prospects over the long term, especially as the United States sort of slow rolls on aid, uh, which has which has also become an issue, even as European governments uh, are very steadfast in their support. Lord Cameron was in uh, Washington and did a, a terrific job making a passionate case uh, for continued support and aid, uh, aid for Ukraine. But but is Europe as gloomy as Washington is? I don't think it's as gloomy as Washington is, but there is a uh, a real sense of concern in uh, Europe about the scale of aid that Ukraine is going to continue to get and the prospect that Europe might have to uh, carry more and more and more of that. Uh, and at a certain stage, this actually starts to be something that impacts, um, well, frankly, all of our tax rates because the Ukrainians are, are fighting a war on our behalf. Um, wars don't come cheap. And, uh, you know, we, the you know, the Western Europeans are going to have to carry probably more and more of this. Now that, you know, that may be very welcome to some people in Washington, but I think, you know, Europe can't afford to let Putin win. Uh, you might be able to, 
um, uh, or at least that might be a, a risk that would be just about worth taking. So um, there is a concern that, uh, I, you know, we were over optimistic about how much we were delivering and the effect it might have. Um, we were over optimistic about how quickly we could train Ukrainians from very, very effective defense uh, with basically small unit tactics to incredibly com complex offense with brand new Western equipment that they've never seen before. And we were all over optimistic about that. But I think the thing that's really hurting the Ukrainians, and, that, and that's a, a concern in Europe, is that none of us, US, Europe, can or are supplying enough offensive weapons at the moment. Uh, that you know, the Ukrainians can fire off everything we give them. Sometimes it's actually probably good just to slow it down a bit. Um, they've proved to be incredibly efficient with artillery uh, ammunition, but um, Europe right. isn't ramping up artillery ammunition production fast enough to compensate for any slowdown from the US. And Europe does not have an alternative uh, source of uh, long-range strike missiles comparable to ATACMs. Uh, so that's that's a, a real concern. I think Europe's going to have to come around to considering what we can do in terms of fixed wing aircraft and um, a whole scale, scale step up in terms of uh, support. And that will not be supported by every country in Europe. Uh, and I think the chance of a, of a consensus on that is incredibly weak, but it will probably be enough large European countries to, uh, to make a difference. I, th I think one of the things that's going to be very interesting to watch is how uh, novel and new capabilities like Andrew's Roadrunner um, are going to change the dynamic. Uh, they're looking at being able to produce a lot of these things for a relatively low cost that could be used both for strike but also air, uh, air defense. Uh, and it is, uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether Europe can harness that innovation uh, ecosystem to try to move some of this stuff along faster. Uh, by by making um, some some tangible trade offs that are aimed at what Ukraine's specific requirements are, right? I mean, in this case, you're not defending yourself against you know Chinese DF twenty ones. You're protecting yourself against Shahids and things like that, uh, where where you you can try to do that. Let me ask. Uh, we're almost out of time. We have in less than a minute. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Fori's uh, comments. Uh, you know, criticizing Germany uh, and uh, you know blocking the export of Eurofight to Saudi Arabia, because if you're Guillaume Fauri, you're also looking at this in, in terms of SCAF and what the next generation of capability looks like. And if Germany is always putting the brakes on uh, arms exports, you're not going to be able to get very far with uh, you know a, a collaborative multi-nation uh, program. Yeah. Um, the, look, the, the painful truth is that not many countries want to work with Germany on military aircraft programs at the moment because the Germans veto exports to a lot of the countries that European com uh, uh, companies have made good livings and have kept in business by exporting to Saudi Arabia being the being the key one. The Saudis are clearly up for another 24, 36, possibly even 48 uh, Eurofighter typhoons. Um, that would be a program led by the UK. Uh, but it has to get German sign-off, and um, uh, Chancellor Scholz's partners in the coalition uh, regard Saudi Arabia as being an un unacceptable uh, customer. I think it's it's quite ironic that Guillaume Fauri um, uh, should be, you know, raising the question uh, or raising the problem at this stage. Um, but uh, it's a problem for Airbus because Airbus Defence and Space needs to have production going into the 2030s to bridge between now and the any buildup of the SCAF program, probably the mid end of the 2030s. Um, no export to Saudi Arabia, and there's a huge production gap uh, in Germany. And it probably does, you know, 
it, you start cutting into muscle at that stage, and that's very, very dangerous indeed for a, for a combat aircraft business. So um, he's only saying what everybody else is saying uh, about uh, the German government and exports. Um, you know, Dassault has been saying this for years, frankly, but uh, it's very, very uh, clear that this is a, an area of stress at present. Uh, Richard, any uh, last thought on that and whether guys like Andrew are going to be instrumental in sort of breaking this production jam, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of getting jammed up. We can't build what it is the way it's engineered and designed fast enough. And so perhaps the solution is for people to design actually completely different things that are easily mass produced, a little bit like like replicator. Just give us a quick take on Germany and, and whether you think guys really thinking out of the box is the only way that we're going to be able to help the Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, first of all, kudos to them for thinking out of the box. Absolutely. Let's give it a try. Um, I have no protest against that at, at whatsoever. Seems like a smart thing to do. Germany. Oh, boy. Complicated. You know, uh, the Saudis need to do something, especially since they want their fighter force to be balanced between the U.S. and uh, other producers. Um, the line for getting a Rafale right now is approximately, uh, what, two or three decades? I don't know what it is, but it's a long time. And, you know, Eurofighter is perhaps the only combat aircraft in the program, in the sorry, in the world, which actually has industrial slack. And that's true both at the airframe level and a lot of the subsystem level, particularly Rolls-Royce, they could deliver. Um, so I'm sure it's extremely frustrating for everyone. And of course, it finally, you know, makes the Franco-German SCAF program look even more ridiculous and on borrowed time. Uh, who would go ahead with that, in, given the set of circumstances? I think it quickly devolves, as I have for many, since it began, to a, a, a collaborative Franco-French program that ultimately is out of Airbus's hands. And you know, becomes Deso uh, only, which is, to be fair, I guess they've been on, they've been lead on the airframe for some time. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you both have a terrific weekend, a terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And thanks to the audience for joining us. And a very special thanks uh, to Bell and all of our sponsors for helping this uh, and all of our programming possible. Have a great weekend, and we look forward to seeing you again uh, tomorrow on the Look Ahead program. Thanks very much. Have a great day, and we'll see you then.